This morning's scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the ones to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for giving us salvation and eternal life through him. Lord, you have seated him at your right hand. You've given him all power and authority. Lord, may we praise you for that this morning. May we worship that truth this morning as we continue hearing the preaching of your word. Lord, may we submit to King Jesus and rest in his authority and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Church family, super good to be with you this morning. Go ahead and hold your place there in Ephesians chapter 1, where we're going to be in just a few minutes. Personally, really good to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, missed you last week. Jennifer and I were part of a marriage conference along with the nuns and the Bennetts from our church in California, and we got to host an event for 15, 16 church planter pastors and their wives and their kids and you as a church made that possible. So thank you for your investment. Uh, loved it, thrilled to be there, but got to say I miss being here. Love my church family, miss anytime I'm not able to be here and gather with you. So it's good to be here with you this morning. Continue in this great letter of Ephesians. If you're, if you're new, if you're just joining us, we're walking verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. We have a reading plan that you can follow along with that. I encourage you to do that. Uh, and this morning, we find our place over in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. Now, let me kind of just in the sense of a little bit of a review this morning. Um, anybody remember when Disney movies were really good movies? Like a long time ago, when they were just really good. I mean, like the classic Disney movies. Uh, hands down, my family knows this, my favorite classic Disney movie has got to be 
the Lion King, right? Just love the Lion King. You may have seen the Lion King, just a classic Disney movie. And if you don't know the story of the Lion King, just really, really quick, it's this. There was a king. His name was Mufasa. He was the powerful lion. And then he had a son named Simba. Spoiler alert, at a point in the movie, the king, Mufasa, dies. If you haven't seen the movie, sorry. The son, Simba, is tricked to think that it was his fault that the great king dies. So Simba runs from the pride lands and runs from who he is and runs from his family and all this and goes and lives in kind of this desert place for years and years. And he runs into this weird meerkat and this weird warthog named Timon and Pumbaa, right? Remember those weird guys? And then he just kind of lives the easy life for years and years. Problem is, he was not living in accordance to who he truly was. So there's this monkey that shows up on the scene, right? Remember the blue monkey, Rafiki, and he carries this walking stick around. He just hits people over the head with his walking stick. Remember that? So Rafiki shows up on the scene, and he goes to Simba, and he says, Simba, wake up, man. One of the highlight classic points in the movie, he goes to Simba, and he, he hits him over the head with his stick and says, wake up. Don't you remember? Don't you know who you are? The classic line, he says, you are Mufasa's boy. You are the son of the king. Live in accordance to who you are. Put a little spiritual twist on it. He's basically saying, don't you know you have a kingdom identity? Don't you know you have a kingdom inheritance? And don't you know with that there are kingdom responsibilities that are yours? Now, in an infinitely more significant way than the Lion King, the Apostle Paul writes the letter to the church at Ephesus to declare to them the glorious realities of who we are in Christ by nature of his grace, our glorious inheritance that we have in Christ. And then he writes on later in the letter all the responsibilities that are ours by nature of knowing who we are. The book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 through 3 is basically this. It's, you could say, we have been called according to his purpose. And we've been looking at some of the details of that calling. Pastor Daniel's been walking us through that for the last few weeks. Chapters 4 through 6 will be there in a few months. But they're the, the responsibilities we have to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To live out who we are and out of these truths of what God has done for us in Christ, by nature of being in Christ. Glorious letter of Ephesians for us. So we've been looking particularly at chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And again, we've been walking through that, not going to spend a lot of time there. But you remember, it's this overflow, this ongoing, run-on Greek sentence out of the heart, inspired by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, where he's just praising God. And he's blessing God for all that God has done in Christ for every saint, for every believer, for those who by faith have trusted Jesus. And he says, verse 3, blessed be the God, just overflowing with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Again, our prayers, your pastors and your elders, and I know even as Daniel was preaching through this, there's just so much there that we can't even fully grasp with this realities of all that God has done for his people in Christ. He says that Jesus' followers are blessed in Christ, verse 3. Verse 4, Jesus' followers are chosen in Christ, verse 4. Verse 5, Jesus' followers have been adopted in Christ. Verse 7, we are redeemed in Christ. Verse 10, we are united in Christ. Verse 13, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, in all of that, we are eternally secure in Christ. Man, that's shouting ground. Those are not maybe realities for the Jesus follower. Those are absolute certainties, not because you had a good day yesterday or a bad day yesterday, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And by faith, we are in Christ. And Paul goes on and he says, what is the ultimate goal of all this? Just to remind you, Paul says, oh, by the way, you're not even the subject of all this. Verse 6, this is all to the praise of, the, of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. We're not even the subject here ultimately of all this. It is to declare the glorious grace of God Almighty. This overflowing realities of what is true of you in Christ, of our position in Christ. These things that will never change. So Paul goes to great lengths to lay these things out in the first 14 verses of chapter 1. And then this morning, that brings us to verse 15 and through the end of the chapter. And really what happens in these verses that Jeremy just read is Paul goes from just overwhelming praise. To the God who is the source of all of these blessings in Christ. And then he turns it into this prayer beginning in verse 15. And you can just follow along. Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Stop right there. Paul says, I'm just, I'm grateful for the reports I'm hearing. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter from house arrest in Rome. He's miles and miles away from Ephesus, but he received letters evidently. He received visitors evidently. He gets this report of the spiritual condition of the church at Ephesus. And he says, I thank God that I'm hearing not just about some faith experience that happened years ago. I'm hearing about your living dynamic faith that is true now. He says, it's demonstrated in your love toward the saints. He says, I thank God for you. Verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It's a great passage of scripture we're about to enter into because you get to go into the the prayer life a little bit of a man like the Apostle Paul. Understand how he prayed for those he had impacted and those he had discipled and those he had poured into. He says, verse 17, this prayer of thanksgiving turns into a prayer of specific requests he he's now asking something for the believers in Ephesus verse 17 he says I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the father of glory man I love that phrase father of glory all power all glory 
would give you, so he's asking something specifically. He says, I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18. I'm praying or, or, or recognizing the sense that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, he says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Stop right there. I'm going to ask just a couple questions about this, and then we're going to continue on through the text this morning. I, I want us to kind of dive into this prayer of Paul and ask a question. Okay, Paul, why are you praying this here? And then, Paul, what particularly are you praying for? So, Paul, why coming out of chapter 1, all these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, why are you praying this here specifically in verse 15 through 24? Let me give you a couple reasons. It's going to help us this morning. Number one, Paul is praying this as he is because Paul wants more for these Ephesians believers. If you read this, you have to almost feel like a, a parent sometimes that... Sometimes as parents, we, we know where our children are and we, we know where they could be or where we would like for them to be. And we, we, you know, we coach and we encourage and we trade and we equip and we always, we want more for our children as, as an act of love. And Paul is saying, listen, I know where you are in Christ, but I'm wanting more for you. What do you mean, Paul? I was trying to wrestle with this this week and how to illustrate this a little bit. I, I thought of it this way. Paul knows the difference between knowing a few truths, head knowledge about Jesus. He knows the difference from that than from Jesus increasingly and progressively becoming your greatest treasure. We would call that a, a devotion phase here at Tri-Cities. And we want more for one another and we want to continually be growing Beyond, I can spill off a few facts and I can say a few verses, yes, that are absolutely true. But this progression of growth where he says, I want you to know in this knowledge of who Jesus is, that Jesus is progressively becoming your greatest treasure. Paul wants that for these believers. Another way I, I thought of it was like this. Paul knows the difference between, for example reading scripture and coming across truths and knowing and hearing about our position in Christ and this reality, not just something we're aware of, but it grips us and it changes us and it transforms us. And listen, that the word of God for you and me becomes alive and transformative. And watch, it intersects every area of our lives. I think you could put it this way, is what you are learning and growing, whether it's here on Sunday morning or in your Bible reading or in your study group or your go group, or is it not only becoming something, watch, is it not only becoming something, a truth that you hold, is it becoming a truth that holds you? Is it transforming every area of your life? 
Paul says this reality of you being adopted, for example, that you have an eternal seat at the table of the king with all the privileges and all the responsibilities and all the joy. You've been adopted as his sons and his daughters. Does that truth grip you? And if it does, that truth will take you from anxiety to peace, from greed to generous living, from a life of insecurity to a life of wholeness and stability. Paul says, I want more for you. So he prays. He pleads, God, give them a, an understanding of wisdom and insight and uh, enlightening of their eyes. So he prays. He wants more. Secondly, I think the second reason Paul prays this is Paul knows something about you and me. Paul knows something about every believer. He knows that left to ourselves, we have an inability to progressively see and grasp and understand these glorious truths. Left to ourselves, we can't even fully grasp these realities. So he pleads with God in this great attitude of dependence and humility to say, God, do in their hearts, do in their minds, do in their lives what only you can do. Enlighten their eyes. Open their eyes. You say, is he talking about unbelievers or believers? Yes. It's a continual reality. We just sang the song. Lord, show us Christ. Increase our capacity to see and know his beauty and his glory and the realities of these truths and all that is ours in him. So it's kind of from that posture that Paul prays. Again, verse 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you this spirit of wisdom, this wisdom is the idea of this right view of God that results in skillful living and of revelation and in the knowledge. The word knowledge here, again, doesn't mean you just know facts. It's the idea of personal knowledge of a God in the context of a growing and abiding love relationship that you know him more and more and more and more. Having the eyes of your hearts, your minds, your understanding, your affections enlightened Verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? If you want to chase the theological idea here, it's this theological idea of illumination, which basically says this. Illumination is the biblical reality that God opens our spiritual eyes to know him and his truth. Here's the practical application for you and me. God's people are continually dependent on God's spirit to illuminate God's truth. So for you and I, we live in this state of dependence. We come in here on Sunday mornings and the word is preached and we're dependent on the spirit of God and we plead with the spirit of God. Let us hear and open our eyes and transform us and let these truths seep down into us and change every aspect of our lives. Paul says, I pray their eyes are enlightened. I was thinking about that this, this week and trying to illustrate even this idea of enlightenment that he's talking about here. It's the, the opening of our mind, our, our eyes to see things we can't see left to ourselves. <laughs> I remember a long time ago when I was in sixth grade, decades ago, Went to the doctor and had an eye exam and 
I had no idea. I mean, the doctor did an eye exam. He said, you realize you're like almost blind. Did you know that? I had no idea. Ordered glasses, went to pick up these glasses and put them on. And I remember some of you all had this experience walking out of the eye doctor and looking around and seeing, I had no idea what I couldn't see. (laughs) I literally remember driving by and realizing, you mean you can see the leaves on the trees? I had no idea. Y'all experienced that? Left to myself, I was unable, I didn't have the capacity to see and comprehend and understand what had been there the whole time. Paul's praying that for every believer, that these truths that are in Scripture will not just be this head knowledge. He's praying that you would grow in wisdom and understanding and you would apprehend and grow in comprehension and devotion. Jesus would become progressively your treasure and these truths would shape every area of our life. Paul's praying that here. As disciples, I think we continually pray that for ourselves consistent with Psalm 119, verse 18, just as a disciple, as you're approaching the word and you're coming to hear the word in a humble posture, it'd be something like this, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your word. And as disciple makers in this church to which we are called and you're investing in the lives of other people, learn from Paul your posture toward those you're discipling. Lord, open the eyes of those I'm trying to add and expand and restore and teach and fill their lives with truth. Lord, open their eyes to see the glorious truths of your word. God, I pray they grow with you as their treasure and your word shapes every area of their lives. So Paul's praying that here. That's the content or that's the, that's the thrust of his prayer. Now, continue on really quick. Okay, so what particularly is the content of what Paul is praying here. So go back in verse 18. I know we've read it several times. I'm going to give you some big ideas that flow out of this this morning of real practical application for us, I think. So verse 18 again, Paul says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So as we wrap up this chapter, I'll give you one big truth that's going to guide our big ideas this morning. It's taken right out of verse 18 here. It's this. Big truth. Jesus' followers are called to find their hope in him. Paul says, in all these things, I'm, I'm praying that you'll continually and progressively in an ongoing way not chase hopes that will not satisfy, not chase all the things that come at you that are constantly changing, but that you will find your hope continually and progressively in Christ who never changes. The idea of hope just reminds us, we talked about it in Ephesians, we talked about it in 1 Peter. When we say the idea of hope, there is no hint of uncertainty. Biblical hope is absolute certainty. It's absolute reality. It's not a wishing. It's not a maybe. It's unchanging realities that God has declared to be true. 
1 Timothy says that Jesus Christ, who is our hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Jesus, who is, this is good, our living hope. So we fix our hope, 1 Peter 1.13, on Christ and on the truths of Scripture that are unchanging. And Paul is praying that here. What does that practically look like? So I'm going to give you five, six big ideas. We'll see how we do with time of how Jesus practically is our hope and how we can fix our hope on him, okay? All right, let me give you the first big idea is this. Christ is our hope because of his calling. We've read it several times, verse 18 again, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you've already been called. You say, okay, uh, help me, what, what, what is that calling? What, what, is, what is the calling he's talking about? You're, listen, your calling is not unknown. Your calling is not uncertain. In fact, Paul has taken the first 14 verses of this letter to declare to you this calling from God based on his grace that is yours in Christ. And it is that that we are to fix our hope on. Let me give you some examples. He says our calling, our position in Christ is certain, it is sure. All that is ours in Christ because it was determined by the sovereign decision of God the Father in eternity past. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. <laughs> we can fix our hope who we are in Christ because God the Father determined your calling in Christ before the world ever began. Mind-boggling. You say, well, I didn't do a lot to contribute to that. No. You weren't even born. It was the gracious, decisive action of God the Father. Our calling, our position in Christ is certain and sure because it is through God the Son. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1, 4 again. He predestined us to adoption to himself as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Our hope is sure and steadfast in Christ this calling that we have because it is through Jesus Christ who never changes. Amen? And then he says our calling, our position in Christ is sure and certain because it is sealed by God the Spirit. Verse 13, in him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, look, I want you to know what is the sure and steadfast hope of this calling, determined by the Father, made possible through the Son, sealed forever by the Spirit of God. Fix your hope on Christ. He's our hope. So with each one of these this morning, I, I, it just occurred to me that, Lord, we, we, we want to turn these realities back into a prayer. So I ended this little big idea here with this as a prayer. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, open my eyes to see and grasp this glorious calling and to set our hope on that which will never change. What God has declared to be true in Christ. So Jesus is our hope because of his calling. Let me give you a second one quickly. Christ is our hope because we belong to him. 
This is an incredible reality. Look back in verse 18 again. Paul says, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And then he ends verse 18 with this little phrase. Maybe just read right over it. And he says, I want you to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul says, I want you to know about this glorious inheritance. And you read along and you say, okay, this inheritance. Whose inheritance? And commentators differ on this a little bit, but I think the weight of Scripture is this, that he's not talking about here primarily our inheritance in Christ. He's talking about Christ's inheritance in us. What? You have to go back to the Old Testament to get a little background on this, and we won't turn there, but in the Old Testament, God's people are repeatedly referred to as God's treasured possession. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are referred to as his inheritance of the value that he places on his possession, the the treasure of his possession. It seems that's what Paul is making reference here to. 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter has this idea and he says, But you, God's people, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In other words, we belong to him. The value of something is determined often by whose possession it is. And he's declaring in Christ, our hope is in him because we belong to him. Let me tell you the significance of that. I think it is extremely important as we're reading through Ephesians and we're reading through our Bibles and I teach this and I hold to this. I mean, it has helped me so much to talk about our identity in Christ and who we are in Christ. But let me tell you what Paul's saying here. More important than who you are in Christ is whose you are. You are his treasured possession. And he says, our hope is fixed on him because we are his treasured possession. We are his. And our value is found in the fact that we belong to him. And Paul says, I am praying that you will grow to know and understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints a prayer Lord would you graciously continue to open our eyes to see and grasp not only who we are in Christ but whose we are in Christ we belong to you glorious reality our hope is in Christ because of his calling our hope is in Christ because we belong to him keep going just a few more Third big idea is this, Christ is our hope because of his great power toward us who believe. Paul continues this prayer here and he says, I I want you to know your calling. I I want you to know this inheritance that Christ has in the saints. I want you to understand also this great power. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. Paul says, I pray that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. And then he comes to verse 19 and he says, and I want you to know what is the, listen to these words. It, it, It just overflows. He says, 
the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the workings of his great might. Immeasurable, great, his great might. He's basically saying that the very divine power of God himself is available to every believer. You say, well, okay, what kind of power? What what does that mean? And Paul says here, verse 19, he says, according to the working of his great might. Now, just give you a little bit of biblical history really quick. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to give an illustration of God's power, the writers of the Old Testament would often go to creation, of God's great power on display through creation. Or they would go to the story of the Red Sea and the Israelites coming out of Egypt and God showing his mighty power. In the New Testament, when God wants to give an illustration of his great power, it is primarily the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Paul here saying, do you want to know the nature of this power that is available to you? Verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us believe, who believe according to the workings of his might. Verse 20, the illustration, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What does that mean? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available in the lives of God's people. Paul says, I want you to know that. I want you to understand when you're faced with challenges and difficulties and you're battling temptation and you read all the things in the New Testament to which we have been called, all these kingdom responsibilities that we're going to get to in chapter 4, 5, and 6 to walk in a manner of our calling. Listen, you are never called to anything that you are not given the equal power in Christ to carry out. So the idea of a believer that I, I can't, I can't endure this temptation with sin. It, it's overpowering me. It's, it's fine. I can't win the battle with purity. I, I can't win the battle of walking in holiness. Paul says, I know it's difficult. The battle will continue until Christ returns. But you are never without divine power to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You need to know that. Says, I want you to know the greatness of this power that is available to you to live out this calling. And see, we're going we're gonna to see that and apply all that when we get to chapter 4 through 6 of all of these kingdom responsibilities. Power to what? Power to love God and his people. We'll talk about that in chapter 4 when we're called to build up the body of Christ. We've been given the power to do that by his spirit in us. Power to pursue holiness and battle temptation. We'll see that in chapter 5 when we're called to walk in light. The power to stand firm against the schemes of the enemies and this battle that we're raging in the spiritual realm. Chapter 6, we'll learn that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But there is a power that has been given to us to fight and stand firm. 
There's the power that is given us to love our spouses and honor our parents. Chapter 5 in Ephesians, there's the power that's given to us to make known with boldness the message of the gospel. We'll read about that in chapter 6. And Paul says, listen, beloved, I don't want you to live a life as if you are weak, powerless, little human beings. You are empowered by the very resurrection power of God Almighty to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Paul prays, I want you to know and live out that power. Next big idea quickly, just two more and we'll wrap it up. He says, not only do I want you to know the power that is available to you, he says, Christ is our hope because he has all authority. Man, this is incredible. So he continues on and he says, I want you to know these things that are yours. And verse 20, he comes and he says, according to the workings of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And then listen to this next phrase into verse 20. And seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above. I love that phrase. Again, the The descriptive words Paul uses here, he says he's not just above all these powers. He is far above all these powers. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus Christ is our hope is because he has all authority. The Apostle Paul here again, drawing from some Old Testament imagery because in the Old Testament, Psalm 110 declares that the Messiah is going to come and the Messiah, after he has died and risen again, will be seated at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110 verse 1 says this, the Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make an enemies of your foot, or enemies your footstool. And you say, what does that all mean? Jesus in Luke chapter 20 said, you know who that's about? Me. And Paul says, now this Christ who has come, taken on flesh, lived a perfect life, died in your place, risen from the dead. He is now taken that position and is seated, metaphorically speaking, at the right hand of God Almighty. What is that? That is the place of all authority. And you say, well, what, the significance of that is, is immense. He says, where is the seat of his authority? He says he's seated in the heavenly places, verse 20. Why does that matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons. But remember verse 1, verse 3 we talked about? You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing where? In the heavenly places. How do you know they're yours? How do you know you're going to receive them? How you know they're secure? Because there's one who is seated at the right hand in the place of authority where? In the heavenly places. All his promises to you and me are secure because he has all authority. You say, well, okay. Well, what's the scope of his authority? Verse 21, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. When we get to chapter 6 of Ephesians, you're going to hear that these are often references to spiritual powers in the heavenly places that are waging war against God's people. 
And Paul says, I just want you to know in this warfare that we're in, Jesus is not one and they're number two. He is infinitely powerful and there is no second place. He has all authority over every power, every principality, all dominion, and every name that is named. And it's glorious. You say, how long is he going to have that place of authority? Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. How long? Not only in this age, but also in the age to come forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Your hope is in Him. Lord, open our eyes to see in the light of the reality that you have absolute all authority both now and forever. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The final big idea is this. Christ is our hope because he is the head and we are his body. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet And he gave him as head over all things to the church, the body of Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Jesus is the head. We are his body. We'll talk more about that as we continue on through Ephesians. But in this context, let me remind you of this one final reality. The team can come on and just begin to play. As Paul's talking about the rule and the reign and the authority of Christ and him being on display in all his glory, question, where is the rule and the reign of our good king currently on display in the world? In other words, where is the world to look and say, oh, he is king? Where is the world to look and say, oh, he does have all authority. Oh, he is full of grace. He is full of mercy. You say the political powers of the world? Nope. (laughs) The government leaders of the world? Nope. Paul says it. He's the head. He has all authority. We are his body which fills all in all. In other words, the living demonstration to the world today of who God is, who Christ is, of his authority, of his reign, of his love, of his grace, is his body, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the world is to look at us You and me who are living according to who we are in Christ and these truths of who God is and all that he's done have so shaped us. They are to look and they're to see his lordship that there's a life that's submitted to this great king. Look at the church and see this picture of intimacy that Jesus declares his intimacy with his so united with his people He declares us to be his very body on earth. It's to be a picture of community, that we're not a bunch of individual parts running around doing our own thing. We are his body, and it's a picture of purpose. You got a purpose. We have a message to declare of the grace of God that is yours in Christ. 
and we have a picture for the world to see. Oh, that's what the world is going to look like when King Jesus returns. That's what his reign looks like, seen in the individual and corporate lives of God's people. Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. That's to be the life of the church, lived out in submission to our great King in light of His glorious calling. Jesus Christ is our unshakable, unchanging hope. Father, I thank you for these truths this morning. Lord, with the Apostle Paul, we overflow to say, blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, we praise you. Would you now take these truths, Lord, sink them down deep into us and transform our very lives for your glory. In his name we pray.